Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Clark from the Lone Gunman Podcast. And if you're enjoying the show that you're listening to right now, then I invite you to check mine out. It's a true crime history-based podcast where we examine all kinds of conspiracy theories, the players, the places, the people surrounding the assassination of our 35th president, John F. Kennedy. We debunk myths because there's a lot of fake people, fake things, fake information out there trying to mislead you from the truth. Does this sound like an assassin to you? Sir, I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Come on, the man. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. The famous words of Lee Oswald, I'm just a patsy. Was he innocent or guilty? Tune in and find out. Darkmist.org. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Spreaker. Thank you. Greetings, comrades. In this episode, we will talk about sports. If you expect a long and extensive list of all the Soviet achievements and three tons of statistics, then this won't be it. Instead, I've went out and gathered more zeitgeist stuff for you, coupled with some really interesting Soviet sports peculiarities, some of which even I found strange. Now, people in the Soviet Union cared a lot about sports. But there was a certain duplicity towards international achievements of our athletes. At least, definitely in the Baltics and in the Caucasus republics of the USSR, like Armenia, Georgia and Azerbaijan. Those people were as much as patriots as we were here. Now, it goes like this. If success in individual sports was achieved by locals, even if under the USSR flag, you would be very, very proud of them. But the achievements of your locals who were in the national team of the USSR in various team sports, yeah, now that would be a bit more complicated. On one side, you were proud that someone from your country had made it to the national team, which was a super difficult thing to achieve, but at the same time, At the same time, there was this weird feeling, this cringy idea that a person from your country 
is doing something good for the Soviet Union, making it more famous, more prestigious, and so on. And we just hated, hated, hated the idea of doing something even remotely good for the Soviet Union. As the prime example for this is Ulyana Semyonova, a very famous Latvian basketball player, the only one from Riga TTT team to be called in the USSR national team. Three world, two Olympic, and ten European championship golds in her achievement list, by the way. In 1993, she became the first non-United States woman enlisted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, officially, everyone was super proud of her success in women's basketball, but at the same time, the people were much more proud of her for what she did as a member of our local TTT team. And that is what we mainly care about here, instead of the USSR team wins. Now, TTT stands for Tram and Trolleybus Trest. Obviously, this team was tied to a factory as all teams here were. And that one, wow, that was a phenomenal team. They won the USSR Women's Basketball Cup 21 times. And that was a super high level of women's basketball, and the reason why it's still quite huge here. Besides, our women's team is doing much better than our men's team at this moment. Also, 19 wins of European Cup. They also played once against the United States of America women's team and beat them in a game on Vilnius in 1979. In 18 seasons of international competition, Ulyana Semyonova never lost a game in national team competitions. Ever. Imagine that. Everyone of the TTT team was good enough to go to the USSR team. But we were Latvians. And that just couldn't do, as that, the national team, was quite a bit Russian-centered. So only a very select few got in, even from such a phenomenal team like TTT. Ulyana, by the way, being 64 now, has created a fund for old, sick, and abandoned Soviet sportsmen who were forgotten when we transitioned into capitalism. A lot of them are poor souls in need of support, and she's leading the action so that they would get the respect that they deserve in Latvia. The same duplicity, as mentioned before, was seen when a goal by our most famous hockey player ever, Helmut Balderis, was scored in Prague. Helmut Balderis, by the way, when USSR players were finally allowed to play in NHL, was drafted by the Minnesota North Stars team, playing 26 games for them, and he scored three goals with six assists. Now, it doesn't seem much, but he became the oldest ever player drafted by an NHL team being 36 years old, and the oldest player ever to score his first goal at 37. When he scored a goal in Prague in 1978, we were sort of proud. Scoring a winning goal, no less, but nobody was happy. Although we wanted our athletes to show themselves from the best side possible, we all were cheering for the Czechoslovakian team. Because, and I'm quoting my dad here, they were beating the damn Red Russians. Actually, I don't even know of any other case when people would be so happy to cheer against their own nation in sports than in the Soviet Union. We were so happy about Miracle on Ice. Like, go USA happy. Nobody here felt closer to the Americans for beating the cheating Soviets than that time. And you know, they were cheating. 
I mean, when talking about this, you have to remember that at that time in the Olympics, only amateur sportsmen were allowed. But all Soviets counted as amateurs only. They technically were all working in a factory or were drafted in the army, which happened most of the time, or were working in the police, because all these teams were tied to this. Like, you had the Dynamo teams in the KBG infrastructure, all of them, Moscow Dynamo, uh, Riga Dynamo, everything. Then you had the Central Sports Club or Army Sports Club teams for the army, and then you had trade union teams, which are Spartak, and then you had teams associated to various factories, which still continues today in the KHL. But yeah, they all were technically just workers in there, so they were counted as amateurs, even though they were doing nothing but playing. So that was obvious cheating. And another case of cheating is that, as you might have heard, in the 70s and 80s, the East German team was accused in the Olympics for doing some something called uh, abortion doping. It is said that it is alleged that they did this, but yeah, over here we know they did this. Basically what they did is that the, their female gymnastics team was artificially inseminated and then uh, abortions were made on them during their third month of pregnancy uh, so that they would get all the hormonal boost they can possibly, they can possibly get. See, such experiment seems inhuman and crazy, but... It's very likely because, for example, over here in the USSR, everyone on the official level were basically laughing about the naivety of the Olympic Committee. Every athlete from the socialist camp was professional at the time when that was not allowed. Look at the space-sponsored doping scandal now in Russia. We really didn't care about morals, as long as we could get away with this, and by we I mean the government. Both people and athletes were really infuriated. Then again, sports have been politicized forever. And so it was also here. Not only by the government, by the way, as this, the sporting events, was one of the very few chances to remind the world that no, we, the rest of the guys in the USSR, the occupied countries, were not Russians, were not really Soviets, and that we were a real thing. Now, the most famous incident of this is the uncontrolled muscle spasms event, which I mentioned before in my Olympic burger episode. But another, but smaller case of this is when Janis Lusis, our Latvian javelin thrower, signed an Olympic champion's memorial record in Mexico in 1968 after winning his gold. He wrote his name in Latin alphabet, not in Russian Cyrillic, as was custom for USSR athletes and was kind of demanded. He got into a bit of trouble for that, not much, but it was a statement, it was all that he could do. And another interesting fact, the only thing successful athletes in the USSR got was the fame. They received very little money. For his gold in Olympics in Mexico, Janis Lusis acquired 5,000 rubles and the rights to skip over the queue and acquire a car. Now, 5,000 rubles was a bit less than the cost of the car, and don't make no mistakes, they didn't give him a car. They just give him 5,000 rubles and the rights to buy one as a reward. His coach, Valentin Smazzalit, got 1,500 rubles, and he still felt super happy about how much he'd acquired. All the athletes, like I said before, were technically amateurs and got their factory salaries or army salaries, which were meager, like those of everyone else. Now, think about this pay. It's no wonder that athletes in the Soviet Union, even the greatest ones, couldn't even acquire enough money to guarantee a retirement fund for them after a career. They were essentially gladiators, used for the entertainment of the crowd and to furbish the glory of the Soviet Union. 
discarded after use. This is why Ulyana Semyonova's fund is actually very necessary here, as the ex-Soviet champions are very, uh, let's just say, prone to hard alcoholism and poverty. This story is not a tale with a happy ending. And you know what? One of the weirdest things about sports in the USSR is actually how ice hockey got popular. And th- that's a bit creepy, because it involves some certain peculiar persons, and because of that it's interesting. And uh, hockey, right now, at this moment, is the number one sport in Latvia, in Russia, and in Czech Republic, and in Slovakia. And now, excuse me, my Latvian hockey fan genes are taking over me, and I must say this now, <clears throat> quote, from myself. Canadians, please forgive me, but A, we are much bigger hockey fans than you are, coming from a smaller country, B, we will beat you one day on the ice as we have beaten Sweden and the United States of America and Finland and Russia, and our country is so much smaller than yours, so that's a great achievement, and Gudlevskis will have his revenge for Sochi. We will grind ice for this. Patriotism mode off. Okay, I'm very sorry, but uh, every time you speak about ice hockey and you know that Canadians are listening, this is what you must say. Actually, in fact, kind of when we lose the championships, we're uh, rooting for the Canadian team, because according to popular Latvian belief, the only ones with the same passion about ice hockey than we do. So, (laughs) anyhow, the person who popularized this sport in the Soviet Union was none other than Stalin's son, Vasily Stalin. Because of him, ice hockey championships started in the Soviet Union. Previously... Everyone was playing bendy, or how they call it, Russian hockey, here in the winter. That is hockey with a ball, played on a frozen football field. Now, in those years, in the 50s, over here in the Soviet Union, it was kind of common to see that people played multiple sports, uh, at least somewhat professionally. There were people who were both professional football players and ice hockey players, because you played football during the summer and ice hockey during the winter, because the technologies of creating advanced uh, locations for these events wasn't that wasn't there yet. Anyhow, Vasily Stalin founded the Soviet Air Force hockey team, as opposite to Dynamo teams representing Berry and KGB and the Army Central Sports Club, who were the army guys supported by their commanders, as I mentioned before. Now, it all was politicized to no end and used as a very political tool in the USSR inter-party dealings. So you just had to have these uh, different teams to deal with all of this situation. And to improve the quality of this Air Force team, Vasily Stalin forcibly called the best Latvian SSR hockey players there, namely Robert Schulmanis and Haris Mellups, so that they'd introduce the team to, quote, nuances of the Canadian hockey. Mellups was a goalkeeper, by the way, who held the position in the first ever Soviet hockey game. He, at the same time, won the Latvian SSR football championship that year as well, like I mentioned before. Both of these players, with their team, well, yeah, and back to the sad part, they unfortunately died in a plane crash, flying to a game in the USSR championships in the 7th of January 1950, which is why you can't hear of the Air Force team today, as you can hear still of the Dynamo teams or the Army Sports Club teams. Continuing on with the politicization of sports in the Soviet Union, we can carry on with an extreme example, really. 
Olympics in Helsinki, 1952, football. Uh, no, please forgive me, I won't call it soccer. So, football championships. Yugoslavia versus USSR. And it's the playoffs. It's the second game, because at that time, there was no extra time or penalty sessions. There were extra games. First game ended 5-5, after Soviets made a miraculous comeback from 1-5. to Soviets lost in this replay, in this second one, with 2-1. to But, as at that time, Tito, the leader of Yugoslavia, was a personal enemy of Stalin's. This loss was viewed as a political catastrophe because Stalin was a huge football fan. So Stalin was furious. He ordered the Soviet Union's football team disbanded. The main sports club, CSKA, where most of the Soviet Union's national team came from, were also disbanded, like everyone fired and just rebuilt anew. He also removed all of these sportsmen's sports masters titles. Those are used in chess today, but were used everywhere within the Soviet Union back then, which meant extra pay and respect for the athletes. It was that big that he basically destroyed his country's leading club and uh, the national team. I guess these athletes actually, knowing Stalin, should be lucky they weren't shot, really. And another, even weirder case of this was when a replay of a semi-finals game in the USSR football championship in 1939 was ordered. It happened after Moscow Spartak won Dynamo Tbilisi in the semi-finals with 1-0. The goal was very disputable as the ball never touched the net. It was flying and as it was about to enter the goal, it was kicked out by the Tbilisi defender. Or so the Georgian team said. Spartak and the judges in that game said that it actually had crossed the goal line by about 50 centimeters mid-air before the defender kicked it out. And thus, they counted this goal. Now, the Tbilisi team protested the game, but the football authorities denied the request, and Spartak proceeded to play in the finals against a team called Stalinets, winning them and thus winning the 1939 cup. But wait, you might ask, you just said that they uh, replayed the semifinals game. Well, yes. Yes, they did. They did it after the finals had already been played. Why? Well, because of communism, of course. Someone from above, quite possibly Stalin himself, seeing as he cared about football, but also maybe someone who wanted to impress him, like maybe Betty, yeah, because he also was also involved in all of this sports thing, brutally ordered the semi-finals game between Dynamo Tbilisi and Spartak Moscow to be replayed after Spartak had already won in the finals and acquired the cup. Sports organizers were panicking. They were protesting this decision. It was insane just to think of this idea, but they were really threatened with all of this. They were forced to do this, and this was impossible to do, and it was complete insanity, but... Soviet Union doesn't really care about pity things such as logics or sanity. So, weirdly enough, after much confusion, that game was replayed. And this time, Spartak won with 3-2. Everyone waited what would happen then, but really nothing much. They were allowed to keep the cup in that year, but still, I can't think of any other instance in history where the semi-final match has been played after the finals. Stalin's care for football also made it in the political jokes of the time. 
namely this one. A party member asks Stalin, Excuse me, General Secretary, but what should we do with Sinyavsky? Uh, who? The, the football commentator guy? Uh, no, comrade, the dissident writer. Well, why do you even ask? We don't need two Sinyavskys anyway. So that's how it went in Stalin's era. But Khrushchev, who followed Stalin, well, he wasn't into such draconic measures. He wasn't into sports that much. He didn't really believe that sports was the best way to gain prestige as a country. And he just didn't really care. But Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev, who came after him, was a huge fan of hockey. His sympathies for the game even put him in opposition of the USSR interests and policies. The usual hockey champions of hockey and the Soviet Union were the CSKA, Centralny Armeni Sportivny Klub, the Central Army Sports Club from Moscow. You see, because the army got all the best players by just, you know, drafting them for the army and not for the club. They are still active today, by the way, and playing in the KHL. But Brezhnev, oh, oh, he didn't care about those guys. He was a fan of the trade unions club, Spartak. Yes, well, of course, every trade unions club in various sports was named Spartak. We didn't have much invention here with the names. Now, Spartak wasn't the strongest hockey team. But, in those times, when Brezhnev visited Le, the Luzhinki Sport Palace, which was the Spartak home stadium and where they played, the opponents of that team could simply forget about winning. The judges were penalizing only the opposing side. Or, you know, there would be consequences. And you know what? Being a sports arbiter in the USSR was a very serious and a psychologically difficult job. Because even though Brezhnev was the head guy... There were many, many other, not as important, but still very important political leaders, party figures and whatnot that could ruin their lives, so that they had to take those into account all the time. Arbiters were influenced with threats and often bribed. And mostly, this happened in football, when in various Soviet championships, the Georgian, Armenian or Azerbaijani SSR teams played between themselves. As back then, in the 70s, Football was almost like a religion there in these Soviet republics. Of course, the audience did notice the fact that the judges were blatantly rigged to one side or another, and there were cases when the arbiters were taken out of the stadium in the back of a militia car because of the fans who were about to seriously lynch them. Now, to give you at least some level of understanding of how weird these games could get, I'll just mention that there was a game between Dynamo Tbilisi and Ararat Yerevan in Georgia, where the Armenian team was winning 1-0. And the arbiter assigned five 11-meter penalties in the last 10 minutes of the game. Tbilisi team scored three of those and won 3-1. Now, the crowd, they were really furious. Even though their team won, they saw what was going on, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But they had to be quiet because that was sanctioned. Now, what has to be mentioned is that the party leaders understood that it's kind of harmful to their cause to make people angry in their own games and between themselves. You know, they're not very friendly to each other to this day, especially Armenia and Azerbaijan, but it would cause way less ruckus in between them if the Caucasus teams would just play tied to each other, and then, then they figured out another solution. They started bribing judges there to have favorable results against other Soviet teams. Of course, similar shenanigans happened in other sports too, but football was the infamous king here. You know what, hockey with Brezhnev there took the second place. Because why not? And yeah, remember the TTT women's basketball team which I mentioned? Yeah, they had a popular joke amongst them that when playing against Spartak Leningrad, their only major competitor and supported by the main USSR government, as it was a Russian team and not based in Latvia, yeah, they joked that each of them were going out to the field with two fouls each. And this? This was a joke based in reality, as the judges there were giving away fouls for literally everything in Leningrad. And our so-called golden girls were saved only by their insane precision. TTT in their best years had over 70% of throws from games scored, which is super amazing. And yes, even though I interviewed an ex-TTT lady for this one, I checked this, and it adds up. They really were that good, according to statistics. Now, remember that I told you that the Soviet athletes had a terrible pay? Yeah, but they still had their talent. And they got to go abroad. And not everyone with the talent got to be a good coach either. Interestingly enough, one of the main reasons why actually people wanted to get to the Soviet national team was smuggling. As you know, everything was deficit here, so people had to make do how they could. And sailors, and yes, sportsmen, were one of the main people who smuggled jeans and cigarettes and all sorts of western stuff in the Soviet Union. But that wasn't the only thing that they did. Starting with the 80s, with Perestroika, they had a new, a less legal way of earning their pay. Now, organized crime suddenly got very interested in them. So, a lot of ex-professional athletes, especially boxers and other fight sports athletes, were hired as debt recovery guys or bodyguards. And quite a lot of them ended up dying in the internal Russian, Russian mafia struggles, or, you know, with shootouts with the authorities in the early 90s. Or just ended up in prison, because such is life in the Eastern Bloc. And of course, when talking about sports in the USSR, we must mention another super, I would even say hyper-important term. Vodka. For a huge amount of athletes, that became the only means of actually relaxing. Especially for those who were in team sports in the national USSR team. As to guarantee good results, they were put into training camps for months on end, before important championships. That's right, it was kind of a concentration camp, but for athletes with a 24-hour training day with draconic discipline, military guards and everything. Assistant coach would check on people at exactly 10pm if everyone's sleeping for one. It was basically a sports prison. 
Not that it helped much, as athletes are usually young people who still want to have fun, but they really didn't have anything else to do besides booze there. There were also cases when the athletes got insanely drunk in public too, when they'd become so famous that, you know, they couldn't really be punished without any public repercussions. Now, my dad, he was a musician, he played in the orchestra and in the band, and so he happened to be a witness, personally, to a case when the famous CSKA hockey team attacking Troika, Petrov, Mikhailov, and Harlamov, who were really famous at the time, had arrived to game in Riga. And while eating dinner in a restaurant, they ordered 12 bottles of 0.5 liter cognac, as most famous sportsmen only drank that. One of each they had drunk before their meals even arrived. Now, ordinary folk saw that, but nobody really cared. It didn't make their fans to love them less. Instead, it actually increased their fandom. As with drinking, they could show to their fans that they're, you know, our people, just like us. In the USSR, a person who didn't drink was, well, seen with suspicion and antipathy. But if you're drinking, then you must be a good guy. You must be a good comrade and one of us, really. Of these three, by the way, only Mikhailov leads a happy life as he found the strength to drop his alcoholism. Center forward Petrov, if I'm being open here, official causes are very many illnesses, but he basically just drunk himself to death. But the Soviet hockey legend Harlamov, who had the number 17, to whom after the super series between the USSR and Canada in 1972, many NHL clubs offered contracts, which he couldn't accept at the time. Yeah... Well, he died in a car crash, presumably after driving drunk. Another interesting story comes from the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squo Valley. A Soviet ice skater, Evgeny Grishin, won both 500-meter and 1500-meter races there, continuing from his success in the previous Olympics in Cortina d'Ampezzo. He was in the center of attention, being poked about how he feels in the USA and what does he like the best there. And you know, things are bad at home, but we are still proud people. So, and I'm quoting Grishin himself here. <clears throat> Quote, So I'm telling them, most of all, I love the clear blue American sky. And the journalists start nodding in favor and showing interest uh, and sighing and w- w- with shows of approval. But then I added, And most of all, I love the seeing the, s- the red Soviet flag in those skies. And somehow the journalists lost interest after that. But there's an even more Soviet story about those wins. And this one comes from a Soviet long-distance speed skater, Viktor Kosichkin, who won gold in 5,000 meters with a new world record and silver in 10,000 meters in these Olympics. He reports something that only Soviets could do at the time about his very win. And you know what? I'll just quote him in length from what he's written for a Russian Olympic history site. Now, here it goes. Quote, In Davos, at the World Championships in 1960, the nylon era of speed skating started. And it went like this. I was put in the second group in the training there, and it was getting cold in the evening, so I'm skating and feeling that I'm freezing. So I go to the locker room, and there are American and German women just getting ready, and I'm asking them to maybe give me some advice on this or something. And they give me their pantyhose. And you know, they didn't make such in the Soviet Union back then, it was a huge deficit. They're obviously too small for me, so that doesn't work. 
so I cut the feet off and got in them somehow, and I'm skating and feeling that it feels really, really good that the nylon pantyhose are giving you the necessary toneness to do this. So I'm doing my training, the ice is not the way I like it, the weather is dreadful, but I still show very good results. I went to the girls, showed them the cut-up pantyhose afterwards, and they're just laughing. But this is serious business. Okay, a little explanation for me here. He's still talking to Kudryatsev, because in the Soviet era, and modern-day Russia still, it's popular to use the father's name as the middle one. I personally would be Kristaps Gundarovich Andresons. And this father's name goes in documents and is often used when addressing people there. So, uh, yeah, don't get confused. Konstantinich is the same as Kudryatsev, just Konstantinich is his father's name and he's, he's addressing him by that one. So, continuing with the quote. So later, at the official dinner, I'm sitting next to Kudryatsev, which was his trainer, by the way. Konstantinich, I have to tell you this. Firstly, I owe a pair of pantyhose to the girls. And secondly, I have this crazy idea. We must go to the store. But at that time, Soviet athletes weren't allowed to walk around the city alone. Especially since it was evening. So I'm grabbing Kudritsev from the table and dragging him to the store, where I had seen a humongous lady mannequin in black pantyhose in the window. So we got in, and I asked them to give me ones just like that. And I asked for a similar black synthetic sweater. And I got that too. I had never worn anything so fitting in my life. Now, obviously, we bought an extra pair and I returned them to the girls. So, we went back to Moscow to get ready for the Olympics and whatnot. It's a four-day flight for us to go to America. We got tired as devils. Arrived at Squaw Valley only at 11 p.m. We go to our living quarters and everyone instantly fell asleep. But I can't do it, I have this manic insomnia. I bought the pantyhose, damn it. I need to dry them out. So I forced myself to wait until the sunrise. It was about 6.30 a.m. But you know, it wasn't allowed for us, Soviets, to go to the stadium alone as well. So, I go to Konstantinich and poke him to come with me, but he's obviously telling me to take a hike and to allow him to sleep. But I'm insistent. Konstantinich, I need to try them out so that I wouldn't embarrass myself later in women's pantyhose. I need to know if I need to wear something else besides them too, you know. So he got up, was quite pissed, but still went with me. Ice was covered with snow. I warmed up a bit, and I'm telling to him, Okay, let's try Troichka. That's 3,000 meters. I'm skating my fourth lap, but Konstantinich yells at me, Stop, you fool, stop! So I skate to him and ask, well, what's wrong? But he's worried and responds, I don't know, maybe my chronometer is broken or something and doesn't show the seconds correctly, but it shows that you're breaking the world record here by 20 seconds. It's 4 minutes 37 seconds and 3000 meters, but you're running on 4.16. And I'm like, Konstantinich, it works! So after breakfast, I start training in this costume, in American pantyhose and nylon sweater, and I'm beating everyone. So, Sasha Grishin, he skates up to me and says, Vitya, let me try your clothes too. Well, he tried them out, and then came to me again yelling, What the hell? Why didn't you tell me earlier? So we shared the clothes from them on, uh, on in these Olympics. And in this very same outfit, in the store-bought pantyhose and the black sweater, Grisha also won his two gold medals in Squaw Valley. End quote. 
Because yeah, going around deficit products within Genity is a Soviet specialty also in sports. Hi guys, this is Alice. I know this episode was supposed to be edited by someone else, as I am in a plein air right now, but this baby is too precious to give away to strangers, so pardon the quality. First of all, thank you for all of those who have filled in our listener survey. We love reading both good and bad comments and try our best to give you the Soviet experience from around here. Thank you to the one commenter who was annoyed by me whispering at the end of every episode. I appreciate your feedback and kindly suggest you never look up ASMR. Of course, thank you to all of those who donate to us on PayPal or become our Patreon supporters. You guys are the best. All of you. Thanks to you, we're a step-by-step closer to the altar, so in honor of this upcoming and wonderful event, we are going to release a special episode about the Eastern European wedding traditions, starting from the first written records through times until today. We welcome you to other podcasts we cooperate with. The Lesser Bonapartes, where Christops and Glenn are discussing the Indian Raj and British in India, as well as our new podcast, PDRP, People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. Warning, may induce thinking. Our promoted podcast this time is Lone Gunman, which talks about and discusses conspiracies regarding the JFK assassination. Here in Soviet Union, we didn't have that much information about it at the time, so this was a great listen for us as well. If you want to support us, you can do it via PayPal or becoming our patron on patreon.com slash the eastern border. Or if you just want to follow us, you can do it on Facebook, the eastern border, or Twitter, eastern underscore border. You can listen to us on our website, theeasternborder.lv, or iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you all for listening, and let's get back to Kristaps and the intellectual sport of the Soviet Union, chess. Well, until now, we have been talking only about the physical sports. But, and this one comes after a request of a listener and I just couldn't skip it, we'll talk about the intellectual ones now. Chess. Because for one bridge, which is a deeply complicated one, wasn't counted there as Soviet Union viewed all card games as gambling. Even though there was no anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union officially, oh, it was there, in the background. You know, I've mentioned before that all of our political jokes come from Odessa. There, um, and there's one about it, because there still was a saying that represented the real situation in the Soviet Union. So, yeah, please don't hate me about it, because all these jokes and sayings, like I said, mostly come from Ashkenazis in Odessa. So, uh, kind of, isn't just an interesting representation of the zeitgeist. For a Jew to achieve something in life in the USSR, he must be either a musician or a chess player. That's just a saying, but uh, here's a political one. An old Jewish man is watching football with his grandson. The commentator says, Goal! Scored by Greshkovitz! The son is happy, but the grandfather looks at him skeptically and asks, And you seriously think they'll count this one? And it was kind of true, sadly. As facts for, speak for themselves, and let's leave the musicians out of this too, some chess players... Pologayevsky, Tal, Spassky, Bronstein, Heller, and Korchnoi, all Jewish, and all Soviet. Chess was huge here. Super huge. And it still is. For example, Dan Reznica Uzul, our current Minister of Finances, is a Latvian champion of chess, and is an official Grandmaster, becoming the European U18 champion in 1998. 
and she still continues to compete professionally. Chess is played in every park here, in every backyard. It's just there, and like everyone just knows how to play it, it's there in the background. There are regular contests somewhere right now in a smoky pub or in the library at this moment, I'm, I'm super sure of this. Because chess was really important there. It has to be said that it was so important because the go- on the government level, it was thought that any Soviet success in chess shows that the USSR is not only physically, but also intellectually superior to the rotten capitalist United States of America. And about this, uh, I will now quote the champion of the world, Eva, also a chess player. The Soviet Union? It was the chess Eldorado. In the government, uh, there were a lot of chess players there. It was heavily supported. Almost every Soviet citizen played chess. Because the chess players ranged in the millions as there were chess clubs in every school. There were newspapers dedicated to chess, books written about chess, uh, especially here in Riga too, we have this, uh, I, I don't know much about it myself personally, but I know that there's something called the Riga School of Chess, which kind of is all about aggressive, impulsive play, playing and making risky gambits. Of course, I know how to play chess and I have played it, but uh, I'm, I'm not that big into it. But still, chess was played by everyone and it was super supported. There were millions upon millions of people just playing that on some sort of a professional level. It was kind of like a national sport here, because we really, really thought that it was super important to beat you guys in chess. We did a lot. Uh, after the World War II, during the existence of Soviet Union, there were 18 games uh, for the World Championship title. 17 times of those USSR won. The only time the Soviets lost in chess in the World Championship, it was in Reykjavik in 1972, where Boris Spassky uh, managed to lose to the genius and at the same very scandalous, at the same time very, very scandalous, Bobby Fischer. Now, Bobby Fischer right now lives in Iceland because he got Icelandic citizenship for this uh, achievement because his life and career went downwards after this. Uh, he's right now known for his very anti-Semitic views, even though him, he himself is the Jew. And secondly, he got banned from American Chess Association in 2001 after he was quoted in radio in Philippines. And he said on open air after 9-11 that, oh, it's a great thing, Americans all should die. No, seriously. So now he's kind of really wanted in America and lives in Iceland and has gone quite crazy. <laughs> But Boris Spassky, he didn't fare that well, you know, as well. Because this loss here, this loss in 1972 to Bobby Fischer was taken very painfully. As with any other sports, the competition with the United States of America was super important. So official media and rumors and everything circulated. People tried to explain how the hell did Bobby Spassky lose? Because we were winning them all the time. And you know what? It started out from uh, the fact that maybe he was malnourished. Maybe the Americans had fed him some poisons or something to make him feel weak so that he wouldn't think. One of the craziest theories, which was really popular at the time, which was basically on the science fiction levels, of of uh, chances going on here was the fact that Bobby Fischer won the match because nearby near the near Iceland 
in the sea, there was an United there was a United States warship which had a computer on it, which actually transferred Bobby Fischer his moves through satellite, and that the compu- that this computer beat uh, Spassky. As you know, computers have only beat humans in chess kind of relatively recently, but this rumor that the United States must have cheated in some way, it was very prevailing. It was actually seen as a major victory here. And we had our own, like, chess champion here in in Latvia, a Latvian-born guy named Mikhail Tal, and he managed to get so famous here in Latvia that there is an experimental opera made about chess here. It was it was presented in 2010, and it was interesting. It was based around a, cha- a chess game between Spassky and Tal. And the interesting part is that this opera... I think there will be some viewings again this year, if you ever come to Latvia. But this opera works in the way that the chess game, and it was kind of composed that way. For example, they followed through a very famous chess game, and this whole opera is about that one chess game, with the story being told there... The pieces are represented by musicians in the orchestra. So, for example, if the first violin gets taken out, then it stops playing in the orchestra and leaves the orchestra. So it's kind of tied in musically. So there's this musical playthrough, because uh, those guys who wrote it, they were really, really big with chess over here. I suppose that's about it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Like I said, the next one is going to be uh, somewhat of a fundraiser where me and Alice are going to be talking about Eastern European, specifically Latvian and Lithuanian and Baltic in general, wedding traditions and how was wedding also celebrated in the Soviet Union. I hope you like the show. And if you have any questions, please send them in. Do svidanie, tovarishi. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. awaits.